Peeps, welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Brian Volkweiss, CEO of the Nacelle Company and Comedy Dynamics. This was a fun one. This was different from other episodes. Ordinarily, I have some sort of relationship with the people that come on the show, or I've worked with them in some regard, or we have like mutual friends. No, this was me just full on playing the role of fanboy. This episode came to be because I was obsessed with Brian's two shows on Netflix, The Toys That Made Us and The Movies That Made Us. So I reached out to WME on a whim and I said, hey, do you think Brian would come on the show? And within 24 hours, they got back to me and they said, yeah, yeah, he'll come on the show. And by the way, he's free next week if, if you want to have him. So we quickly put this together. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. It was great to get Brian's insight specifically into the world of stand-up comedy and producing and distributing stand-up comedy specials. It was great because I never had a guest on the show that really lives in that world. Uh, It was great to hear the story of how the toys that made us came to be. What were the networks he took it to beforehand? What were some of the notes he received? What was the partnership like with Netflix? And how did the spinoff, the movies that made us, come to be? I also tried to, you know, get some intel out of him of what the upcoming season of the movies that made us will provide. Um, I wasn't totally successful, uh, but I I had to try. I had to try. Again, this was me just being a total fanboy. I had so much fun. I didn't even get into the fact that he's producing Behind the Attraction, which is this new show coming up for Disney+. Plus. We didn't even get into that. We didn't get into the fact that he produced the new Mad About You reboot uh, with Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt. We didn't have time. Uh, we, we went through a bunch of different topics, how he's keeping his company to move forward creatively during the pandemic, what it's like working from home during the pandemic, which all of us can relate to. He's a self-admitted geek, but he allowed me to geek out with him, and I really appreciate it. He was a great sport. This is my sit-down with Brian Volkweiss. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so Brian, one of the things I read about you that I was fascinated by, I, you know, anyone who knows your work knows comedy, uh, they know probably some sort of geekdom or obsession with pop culture, but reading up some interviews with you, I was surprised to find out that you're like a big, like US history buff. Yeah, very much so. So, so knowing the time we find ourselves in, how does this all end? Have you thought about this yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, uh, of course. Um, I, I think the thing that it has most in common is, you know, Pearl Harbor. Um, because if you look at what Pearl Harbor was, forgetting about what it would, you know, forgetting about World War II, forgetting about the details, what Pearl Harbor was, was a couple hours changed everything. So you literally had some boats sink, 3,000 Americans die, but it all happened within three hours. Within a month of those three hours, you had families sending their children to training camps. You had car factories start making airplanes. So just it... I can't find anything more common to what we're dealing with than that, except for, of course, Fort Sumner, which led to the Civil War. So, and, and by that, I mean a very tiny event that would change every, like everybody's way of life. Everybody was affected by World War II. 
everybody was affected by Pearl Harbor. To a certain degree, the Lusitania with World War I, not as much in a weird way as World War II or even the Civil War, but again, a very small moment of time affected years. Mm. So I think that's, that's, the, that's the main analogy, but I would also look at 9-11 as a, to answer your second question about what's gonna happen, the example I would use is if, if you remember after 9-11, they came up with all these color codes and they mm. were like, it's code orange, it's code blue, it's code yellow. And it was so weird and crazy. And eventually you got used to it. Then eventually you didn't notice it. And even today, that system is still in effect. It's still there. It's just not used as much. And I think that's what we're going to be dealing with. Let's talk about our business. What you've seen now being at home, like as we're doing the Zoom right now, I should paint a picture for the audience. You have behind you just shelves and shelves full of action figures. uh, And And vehicles. And, and vehicles, yes. I wasn't going to shortchange you. Yeah, impre- an impressive collection, which is, is not surprising considering what, I mean, I should probably tell you why I wanted you on the show in the first place. Like, this is the first one of these I've done where literally, Brian, it just came from me loving your shows oh, and, wow. me, and me just like researching who repped you. And I was like, okay, he's repped at WME. I'm just going to send an email to WME and just see if Brian would like even do this because, you know, the toys that made us, the movies that made us, have brought me so much joy. It was such a great discovery when I stumbled upon them last year. I've told everybody I know, I mentioned it on this podcast, and I love that my first time interfacing with you immediately draped <laughs> behind you a sea of action figures. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'll, if I, get, I think I have your email. I'll shoot you an email of a video I shot for a friend of mine that's a 360-degree view. Okay. Uh, and that, that will blow your mind. Because right now, this is your, you're just like your collection room at home? Yeah. I mean, okay. Is, yeah, this is where I normally just collect things. Going back to my point of what we've experienced in our business over the last two months of, as we've been staying home, I've observed some things. I know you have kids. I, I have kids. I've observed some things where I'm like, huh, this really makes me rethink a lot about how I go about my creative collaboration process with my partners, with people at my own company. It's, it's made me rethink ways in which I pitch and it's made me question the old model of how we pitch. Is there anything you think we've been forced into by nature of the stay at home that you think is going to stick around after this is all over that we might carry through? Well, I, I, there's two things that have changed a lot for me in that regard. One is I mean, we we were I mean, we were so lucky with all of our series. I mean, t- tell me about this kind of luck if you've ever heard anything luckier for a production. All of our shows were either so far in post or so early in pre-production. None of our shows got canceled. Right. So we were I mean, almost everybody I I mean, I know multiple production companies that had multiple all their shows canceled or postponed. So, I mean, we were so lucky in that regard, but um, basically we very quickly, we have a bunch of shows at Netflix and I, I never know. It's so funny. Every now and then I'm doing interviews and I say things that in my mind are compliments to Netflix. And then I get like a message later saying, I know you were trying to be complimentary, but uh, please, I wish you hadn't said that. So 
I hope they don't mind me saying this, but literally, I mean, I could even, I'll be honest with you, I could tear up saying this. So if I tear up, I, luckily this is only audio. You're in good company. I mean, thank you. The, the, the week when the, can I curse? I always oh, yeah, yeah you can curse, you can curse, you can cry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, great. This is my favorite interview ever. Okay. So literally the week when the shit hit the fan, it was like that last week of March, we had evacuated our headquarters, the move, the, 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 the all the news was bad. Everything was bad, 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 bad. Our executive at Nat, and again, I wish I could tell you his name, but I've learned not to, so I'm not going to, but I'd like to give him credit for this. He calls me up and he says, and I, literally, I can literally feel it in my chest. And I got to be honest with you, when I saw him on my caller ID, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, all my shows, we have three shows there right now. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, great. Here's the call I get where three of my shows are canceled. He literally called to say to me, hey, man, I want to let you know, you're, there will be some shows getting canceled at Netflix. We will, you will be seeing some headlines. Don't worry. It's not you guys. You guys stay safe. Do what you have to do. Even if you have to shut down, we're going to keep funding you. Like, I mean, it was like, wow. I literally cried. I mean, I got, I teared up on the phone with him. And then when the call ended, I literally cried. Uh, mm-hmm. It was crazy. And then they, based on that call, and now I'm getting to answer your question. So I'm sorry if I'm being long winded. No. Um, based on that call, we instantly started building remote camera systems. So between that call, which I would estimate was around March 20th, and today, uh, we have built four on the way to at least six or seven remote camera systems. And these are, they're basically a box. We're doing, we're doing this on a series of mine right now that we're doing remotely shot, yeah. Yeah. I would imagine everybody is. Yeah. So yeah, so I won't waste your time with how it but, works. But, no, but, but explain to the audience, it's like a prepackaged box that makes it user-friendly and you it, drop it yeah. off, right? It's a box with two cameras. It has an audio recording capability, a hard drive, light bars, and um, uh, tripods and all that. And basically we FedEx it to somebody. Then on Zoom, we tell them, okay, open the box, do this, do that. And then once they have it kind of set up, we can remotely control everything. So we can pan, tilt, fade, all that. Oh, we haven't done that. Now, what kind of cameras are you using? Because we've done done a very rudimentary version of that. Everything you just said, other than the remote controlling of the camera, we we were sending high-resolution iPads and iPhones for this show we're doing for a cable network. But you, what kind of cameras were you sending out? I, I don't. You, the, my production department would be amazed okay. that I even knew what I told you all. <laughs> you know, I, I, I sure as hell don't know the cameras. I'm not even joking. They, 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 <laughs> no, I know you're not. That's why I'm laughing. Uh, but I, yeah, but I have been fascinated by this. It's so interesting. And of yeah. course, there was a dollar value to it. So I, I paid attention to that. Yeah. But so that was the first thing. So back to your question. Um, I can't imagine when this is over, we're just going to throw these in the dumpster. Like, I think, I think for certain interviews, we'll use them forever. That's a guess. The other big change, I used to meet with my head, head of development once a week. I now Zoom or speak with her every morning at 9 a.m. So our output, our development output, 
I would say has conservatively gone up by 33% a third. I sound like an asshole. Why didn't I just say a third? 33 and a third is my favorite Naked Gun movie. So you could- Come on. It's not better than the first. No, of course not. It was a joke. But uh, good reference though. Good reference. But um, yeah, so I mean, we're developing more. We have not yet sold a show during quarantine. So that'll be like a moment for us if we're able to do that. But I mean, I gotta be honest with you. I mean, we've been pitching over Zoom. I mean, it. I, I would say in the two months of quarantine, uh, which will be two months exactly tomorrow. I mean, I, I go two months all the time without selling a show. So yeah. what I'm curious about is at four or five months, if we haven't sold a show, then I'll be worried. But at four or five months, if we've sold two or three shows, because we're close on a couple things, then I'm like, whoa, maybe it's easier to sell shows during quarantine. I'm with you on a couple things. I, I feel like this is going to change the way I look at pitching forever after this, because I've, I've been doing a series of pitches throughout this time. And, you know, when you've, when you've worked in the business for a certain amount of years, you, you have relationships in history with a certain group of buyers, right? You know, these, these are people that you would consider friends or you know them well enough that you can do a Zoom meeting with them and it not be awkward because you have a familiarity, right? Exactly. And, it, and it, changed, it changed my whole, my, my whole concept of pitching because I started thinking, wait a second. I know, I have known this network executive for like six, seven, eight years. Why am I driving all the way to Burbank? But I've never understood that. Like, yeah, like, like now, but, well, here's why, Brian, because we were all like our dads when it came to Zooms before this. Like, when, like and, and believe me, yeah. I was like your great, great grandfather when it came to Zoom. Like, yeah, no, I was too. I, I feel like Doc Brown now, like doing a Zoom. I feel like, you know, I feel like Steve Jobs. But before this, like us, the network buyers, like you'd go into a, remember having to do a normal video conference at your office? Like, right. or, or between like, I could be in the Discovery office and they could be patched into Discovery New York and I would still be nervous about yes. getting yeah. it to work. Now, all of us are savvy. So knowing that, sorry, I get excited when I, when I get on a rant like this. So, sorry well, if, I'm, no, I'm sorry if my volume, sorry if my volume's getting shrieky. No, I'm, but, I'm the same way. But, um, but I'm like, wait, okay, so if I am friends and I know this network executive, why do I need to drive all the way, spend an hour in my car, deal with security, deal with parking, and take an hour out of their day when honestly, on a Zoom, you, you're more time effective, you're, you're, you're kind of capping your meetings at a half hour, and if, it, if there's a sizzle reel, then I will send you the link, watch the sizzle reel just before you get on the Zoom with me, and then let's talk about it on the Zoom. That is as good as any pitch, especially if I already know you. Now, if, now if I don't know you and I don't know the buyer, I do think you lose something with the in-person feeling you out chemistry in the room. Yes. Yeah, right? Yes, but I would say this. You don't bond with someone during a pitch, as you know. So the person you don't know, get breakfast, get lunch, get drinks. And I, I, my favorite thing that you're talking about, and I'm sure you're the same as me, I have friends that are executives. These are people I'm at birthday parties with our kids on the weekends. Yeah. We go to concerts together. We're texting seven days a week. What? Why? Why? Why do I even have to pitch you? Let me just send you the fucking tape. You like it? Great. You don't like it? Great. You got no like just. 
the whole idea of a pitch. Like, you know me, you know what I can do or not do. Like, yeah. just, and, and I'm trying to think if I've ever actually asked these, like, and these are really good friends, the people I'm referring to now. These are people that if I left show business today and I was back in LA for a business, I, I'd be happy to see them. Like, like that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, way, let me tell you something about the Zooms also yeah. that just happened. Like, my next door neighbor across the street, conservatively mid-70s, they could be in their late, early 80s for all I know. They bought, and maybe this is why we still need to pitch, a brand new, I asked the guy, brand new, Lamborghini, brand new. And as far as I can tell, twice a day, for reasons I haven't been able to ask him about yet, they just turn it on. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a car and thing. I don't know if you could hear it or not. I but can't, it, but I, hey, so Brian, in, in my neck of the woods here in Encino, I have the lawnmowers doing, so I, on both sides of my neighbors, I have lawnmowers going seemingly 24-7, and I've had that happen. I had it happen this morning. I was on with my British bosses at 8, which by the way, there should be a city ordinance, no lawnmowers before 9 a.m. That should be against the law. There should be a ticket for that. Well, other neighbor, the one, like our backyards are touching. Yeah. This guy, this was really funny. This happened in the first week of the quarantine. Literally, the guy just blasts music between like 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. And I go to my wife. I'm like, what is this guy doing? And she's like, Ryan, he does that every day. You're just never home. <laughs> and now it's white noise. I don't even notice it. Like, if it, didn't, if it wasn't on right now, I'd be freaked out. Let's talk about this. What is he playing? What's in, what's in the, the mix great. I'm glad you asked that. Because this guy, very similar to me, but he actually out-eclectic tastes me. This oh, wow. guy's blasting Bach on Monday, Britney Spears on Tuesday. Like, I mean, it is. I, it is I love that. But blasting in his house. That reminds, yes, that reminds me in college during finals week. I don't know if you had this, but in, in college, they would have this rule that it was 23 and a half hour quiet hours, they called it in our dorms yeah, during we, finals week because everyone's studying. So we had 23. We had not, you went we're, to a good college. Wait, wait, you went to Iowa, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, because you're, you're, you're a New York City guy, right? I was, yeah, born and raised Queens. But yeah, I think during finals week, we had uh, be as fucking loud as you can week. Uh, okay, so so, so my, school, my school is 23 and a half hour quiet hours. Where did so you go? I went to this small school called Cal, California Lutheran University, which is in Thousand Oaks. That sounds like they would have a 23 hour uh, uh, quiet time. So what we did, going back to your neighbor and rotating the playlist, is we would have like, we'd have like Tupac Tuesdays and like West Side Wednesdays, Stevie Wonder Sundays. We would come up with it and that whole week we would have like a, a program. Um, we should probably get into talking TV for a second. Yes. I could do, the, I could do this all day with you. Let's do that. All right, so Nussel Company. Yeah. You start this in what, 2008? Because you had been a comedy manager previous to that? Yeah, I'd been a comedy It's a very long, complicated story that is sort of hard to explain. But basically, I worked at a tiny management company that was bought by a bigger company called New Wave in sure. 2003. Um, and I was a manager. I, I retired... I think I retired in 2012. So I think I've been out of management for about eight years. Um, I'm really bad with dates. And then New Wave, for a variety of reasons I'm not going to get into, all positive. That sounded like a conspiracy. But for positive reasons, 
I was able to buy what I had built at New Wave. I was able to buy it from New Wave. And I think that was about three years ago. And that's when I launched the Nacelle Company. Um, And the Nacelle Company owns Comedy Dynamics the way Viacom owns Comedy Central. So Comedy Dynamics was really the company you first started coming out of management, correct? Yes. And to be honest with you, I would have named, well, actually it was concurrent. So as I was managing, uh, I was starting to build our library um, for Comedy Dynamics, which was 99.9% stand-up comedy. And I was actually going to name our, when I left, when we bought it from New Wave, I was going to name it uh, Comedy Dynamics. And thank God, um, because Toys That Made Us had not come out yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank God somebody had pointed out to me that, um, and I always love talking about stuff like this, because it's like every now and then people are like, Brian, you're a genius. Brian, you're a genius. You saw everything coming. And I always like to point out the amount of stuff I've gotten right that was lucky vastly by like 90 to 10% exceeds the stuff I was a genius about or whatever or for excited. But someone was like, yeah, but what if you ever do stuff that's not comedy? How would you call that comedy dynamics? And that's when I came up with a neutral name um, for that reason. I think that was about three years ago. And explain for the audience what nacelle is, what a nacelle is. So what nacelle is, is uh, it's literally the thing that holds an engine onto a plane or a boat. So if you ever see what an airplane engine looks like in the hangar, not on the plane, it's this metal tube covered with pipes and wires. Then it gets bolted to the airplane wing and a nice little pretty color cover that matches the airplane surrounds it. And the same thing is true for boats. That's the nacelle. But what it also is... Right, here we go. It's a, a dog whistle for geeks. Because a nacelle, and this is one of my favorite words my whole life, and I've been familiar with it since I was probably eight or nine years old. If you think about the Enterprise from Star Trek, those thing, if you're not a Star Trek fan, the thing you would call wings uh, that shoot off, there's like the round part, the cylinder part, and then the wings. Uh, the wings, the proper name for the wings are the nacelles. So... It, and even if you're not a Trekkie, if you're a geek, you probably know what a nacelle is because of Star Trek. So let's get into this. Let's get into you launching uh, Comedy Dynamics because I don't, I love stand-up comedy, but it's interesting. I, I've worked in the unscripted community for years now and I really don't under, I don't know the economics and the process of the stand-up special world. And from what I can gather, having done my research, your company is putting out more stand-up specials per year than any other company in the business, right? Like Netflix, Netflix for uh, I think two years in a row has exceeded our output. Um, so but yeah, but you, but you as an independent company, you as a production oh, and, company, and as an independent company, uh, on what, I mean, no, nobody comes close. I mean, we, what, do, yeah. we do 25 to 35 a year. A year. Uh, yeah. And our, our biggest, our biggest competitor probably does three. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, you're literally shooting three different comedy specials a month in like, in like a given year, like in a good year. That's crazy Fortunately, to me. it doesn't work like that. Unfortunately, the yeah. truth is some months we do one, some months we do nine. Right. So uh, I, I, wish it was, I wish it was always three or four a month, but the artists with their schedules, we have to, we, we got to work on their time. 
Well, we're talking Ali Wong for this is for the audience. A Ali Wong, Bill Burr, Aziz Ansari, Tiffany Haddish, Mark Marin, Jim Gaffigan, Pete Davidson, Alana Glazer, and the list goes on and on and on. DL Hughley, and and you've worked with people. You know, as I was reading through all the specials, uh, you know, you've worked with people time and time again. You know, you've done multiple specials for certain comedians. Explain explain for those that don't know the economics of comedy specials. Like you talk about your library. Um, and I saw, and I think it was a New York times interview you did. You mentioned there's like 700 specials in your library or something like that. Does that mean that you are independently financing these specials out of pocket and collaborating with your comedians? And then you sell all these specials as acquisitions. Is that how at least the business started? Um, so the business started, I'll answer your question in reverse yeah. order. If that's okay. Yeah. Um, so the business started for a couple of reasons. Um, one reason was, so as a manager of comedians, I would make, you know, between zero and two or three specials a year for my clients. So I had that experience and I saw how it worked from a production standpoint. Um, and I also, because I had done, I had had a window to the deal making process, I knew that like the majority of the specials that we were making were for Comedy Central or Showtime. Right. And I knew that the deals they made for whatever reason were licenses with a limited license window. So I knew I was doing these deals for my clients and instead of them, what Netflix does now, and for the life of me, I don't know why Netflix, I don't know why no one did this before Netflix, but Netflix was the first company around 2015 to start owning the specials outright. Before that, almost all of these other companies would pay to make it and then only own it for three to five years. And then you get it back. And would the and when you say get it back, is it co-owned by you and the comedian? So when we when we started out, they were originally they were only owned by the comedian. So if you look at the very first specials I ever did, which was like Greg Barant um, and a couple others back then they own the specials. Then at some point, as the license fees started going down, I started chipping in my own money and then um, I would co-own them, but I would control the rights uh, with the artist. Mm -hmm. Then uh, my buddy Jack in 2006 gave me or told me to read a book that I read, uh, which was called The Long Tail. Have you read, are you familiar with the book? No, no. So, the book, I always mention the, the year because it's a very important part about the book. Because, and a lot of people, when I explain the book to them, they go, oh my God, I'm going to order the book right now. And I always go, don't order the book. It'll be the most boring fucking thing you've ever read. And here's why. I read the book in 2006. And I always say the year because 2006 is before YouTube, before anybody even heard the word streaming. But like... It was at least a year, in some cases, five or six years away, ahead of the curve. And what the book predicted was, to sum it up in one sentence, or two words, unlimited shelf space. And what the book basically said was, you know, up until now, if you're Walmart or Target or Best Buy or Tower Records, because you have a finite amount of shelf space, you must carry Britney Spears. You must carry 
whatever, because you need to have the stuff that people want to buy to justify your rent and overhead. We're going to head away from that, America, planet Earth, and it's no longer going to matter what shelf space is. And the other thing the book said is you'll be able to make more from less. And what that meant was up until around 2006 to 2010, that range um, of a thousand titles, most of the money was made, let's just say a hundred titles because I'm bad at math. Of a hundred titles, most of the money was made by two titles. Mm. So those other 98 titles, polka music, stand-up comedy, audio, like hardcore rap, whatever. That was the other 98 titles, and they didn't make a lot of money. But if you controlled a library, it was heading, the book predicted we were heading towards a time where you could actually make more money from the bottom 30 than the top two. Mm. So if there's anything I did where I'm like, all right, Brian, good job. In my entire career, by the way, this would really be the only thing that I would pat myself on the back for. Everything else was some degree of luck. I bet everything that the book was right. Everything. So I literally, after I read the book, I, I was up until then I was renting cameras. I, I was like, I bought five cameras and I went from making one or two specials a year for my clients whenever they saw. So up until then, I would sell the special, then I would make it. Right. Starting after I read the book, I, would, I literally made like eight specials the first year that I financed myself. Then I made 10, then I made 12, then I made 15, then I made 20. I financed almost all of them myself. And then we would take them out to sell. And back then, 98, uh, nine out of 10 specials would sell because all of these companies, they were only green lighting about 30% of what they needed and then the other 70% they would acquire. So I was, because of my volume, I was able to go to them and be like, hey, I've got these 10 specials. Why don't you, you know, here, why don't you? And they'd be like, oh, I really want these two. And I'd be able to say, you want those two? Why don't you take these five? <laughs> and that's how I was able to build my library. Hmm. And over about a five or six year period, as the rights, all those deals were two to five year deals. Right. So over a five year period, and it's happening every month now to this day, those rights start reverting back to us and we were able to build our library. And do you Once, keep all those, like the, the library and the rights and the license deals and renewals, do you keep that all in house? Do you have like a distribution kind of company that helps you monitor the rights and when they're up and all that? So what happened was, and this started in 2014, we had had enough titles revert. And it's, it's so funny, it's laughable now. We actually, I was waiting for the magic number of 40. Okay. I was like, woohoo, I got 40 titles back, meaning the license periods had ended. Right. And we launched our distribution network on 40 titles. In retrospect, we really should have had at least 200. Like it was the, uh, the utter hubris and insanity. And it was just very nice executives at like Hulu and Roku, who, by the way, never even told me I was being an idiot. They were like, yeah, yeah, we'll do a deal with you. And part of it was luck because no one else had a stand-up library. 
all the other stand-up libraries were behind closed doors at mm -hmm. HBO or wherever. So I, so we now, as you said, we have, we actually have close to a thousand titles. So at this point, but back, so once we had Hulu, so it literally, like I have on my office wall in my actual office in Burbank, um, I have a picture of what our network, network in quotes, by the way, looked like in 2014. And it was six platforms. It's now oh, well over a hundred. I mean, it's yeah. it, worldwide, all that crap. So yeah, we don't have, a, we are a distributor now as much as we, we're more in many ways are in, in like, just to give you an example, our distribution arm is now bigger than our production arm. Right. Because you, you now you finance the specials with your partner, you sell them with your partner and no, then you- I have no partner. There's no partner. No, no. I mean, I mean the comedians. No, they don't contribute anything. I pay them. You pay them. Right. But you do, you do all the work on behalf of the, the title for them, right? So you, you are yeah, distributor, they're, financier. They're, but they're not putting money in. No, of course not. Right. Yeah, but they, they make something out of it though. Well, yeah, no, so we, we pay up front usually. Yeah, almost. so you're you're their 360 studio. You're you're we're a studio. Yeah. I mean, we're, as it relates to stand up, I mean, right. we're literally acting in the traditional sense as a and, studio. And you're but doing a small one, tiny yeah, one. But you're doing it in a visual content business where nobody owns a library anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's really but what by it is. The way, we didn't make 800 to a thousand titles. I mean, we probably only made. I think less than 300 of those. We've been buying libraries. Oh, you've been acquiring other libraries. Yeah. And licensing libraries, yeah. Got it. So if someone's going to work, I mean, because you've managed comedians, you've now worked with so many and collaborated. If, what would be the advice you give somebody who is entering into a field where they are going to be working with comedians? Because they are a unique beast. They are a unique kind of artist. I don't want to generalize that all comedians are the same. They're not. But if someone is about to become a young comedy manager or somebody is going to go work at Comedy Central, they're going to be interfacing with comedians. What's the one piece of advice you give somebody that's about to embark on that career? You know what, man? It's going to sound like the most cliched, simple, easy advice, but it, I can't tell you how many times I see people mess this up. I mean, I'd say 90% of managers can't get this through their head and implement. It's about them. Like, and they... First of all, it's about them. That's in a weird way. That's the simple part, but it's the hard part. So many managers think it's about them, like mm. themselves. Mm -hmm. and it's, like, it's not about you. It's about your clients. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, it's like, as a manager, you, I, when I was a manager, I used to always, cause I'm like a visual, like learning kind of guy. Like I need visuals. I used to always imagine I was this big flaming sword that was just cutting through the business on their behalf. And so they could be creative and they could stay out till three in the morning telling jokes and sleep till noon. I would go to bed at midnight, wake up at five, go to the office and just fight for them and fight I mean, there are executives at Netflix and where, elsewhere that I dealt with as a manager, and they still are making jokes about how aggressive I was. Like, <laughs> and, and that, that, but that was my job. I had to do, now listen, you can never alienate a buyer, as I'm sure you know, yeah. but you really had to push as far as you can for your client without alienating the buyer. And that's what I did. 
And that's the line. And that's where really at the end of the day, this is a people business, right? It's about being able to read the room and having tact and being a communicator where you can get your point across. But like you said, not burn bridges or alienate yourself moving forward, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, so we, I, I have so much I want to get into now because we've covered so much stand-up. I, I want to get into the shows, um, the Netflix shows. But real quick, which comedian from the past do you most wish you could collaborate and produce their special with from the past? Meaning they're dead? Meaning, mean, meaning they're not making specials anymore or they're not with us any longer. Somebody from a, a, a previous generation that you wish you could have collaborated with and done one of their specials. I mean, this is not a perfect answer, but I mean, it's really Eddie Murphy. I mean, he... Does he go forward? Here's a perfect answer. Um, Richard Pryor. And when I, when I, here's what I mean by perfect. Pryor is dead, and he's not making specials. Yeah. Eddie Murphy's not perfect, because A, he's still alive, and B, rumor has that he might be doing some stand-up. Do you, think, uh, do, you, do you think he goes forward with the special? I mean, the rumors are out there that Eddie's do. done some pop-ins, but do you think he's going to do. do the special? Yeah. It's a drug. It's a drug. It's, okay. uh, it, it's amazing he stopped as long as he did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he's one of these people that, and it's such a cliche to say this, but it's not true 99.99999% of the time. Eddie Murphy is one of these people. He truly would make reading the phone book funny. Like he is just, his horrible movies are funny. He's funny. Like Pluto Nash, yes, it's a disaster. Yes, it's a horrible film. He's so funny. (laughs) Bowfinger, which lost money, it's so funny. Him in interviews, just him being interviewed. So funny. And the only other person really liked that was uh, Richard Pryor. You know, I was going to say this to the end just because of, you know, talking about the movies that made us, but are you a sports fan by any stretch? Okay. So so the Michael Jordan doc is 10 parts. Here's the weird thing. I love sports movies. Okay. And I love sports docs and I cannot wait to see that. Okay. It's, it's amazing. It's fantastic. So I was going to ask you, do you think there's anybody in either the comedy or Hollywood space that would deserve a 10 part series in the same way that Jordan is being treated with 10 parts? And as you were talking about Eddie Murphy, Murphy. part of me was kind of thinking Eddie Murphy is the only person other than maybe Spielberg that deserves 10 parts, but Eddie Murphy is much more a character than Spielberg is. You know, it would all be about the movies with Spielberg with Eddie. There's personal stories behind the scenes stories that you'd want to hear. Here's the thing about Eddie Murphy that I feel gets lost. There's certain artists or certain things in life. You know how like photographers, like if there's like a, or not even photographers, but like, you know how like you could be in the woods and you see a gigantic paw print, but you must in the snow and you must put a dollar bill next to it to show the scale. Cause if yeah. you don't, you can't tell how big the paw print is. Yeah. There's a bunch of artists and movies and things that are like that. Their scale is so big, you do not understand how big they are. Eddie Murphy is one of those people because do you understand if you look, if you go back to Trading Places and you go to, what do you call it, that came out on Netflix last year? Right. Um, Dolomite. Huh? Dolomite. Dolomite. This guy has never gone, if you rate 
Hollywood power, one through 10. This guy, from the minute Trading Places came out to this very moment, never dipped below an eight. Mm -hmm. Now, even, he, even during Pluto Nash era, he was at an eight. Look at Stallone. In terms of power, you're talking about in terms of box office draw. What I mean by power is the ability to green light at a certain budget whenever you want. Right. Like Eddie Murphy today says yes. I think over uh, between 50 and 100 million is greenlit. Right. Now look at the people who were huge when his movie, when uh, Trading Places came out. Stallone, Schwarzenegger. Stallone can only really make stuff that's a sequel to his prior stuff. Schwarzenegger, God bless him, only Republican I ever voted for on general principles, Arnold. That, he's, he's not greenlighting much lately. Um, Seagal. Look at all the people. They're, yeah. go, they're gone. They've gone up and out. And people have risen and fallen. Maybe yeah. Tom Cruise. Yeah. Tom Cruise is another example similar to Eddie Murphy. Yeah. But, yeah, so I'd say it's Tom Cruise, Eddie Murphy, and if we're including directors, Spielberg and Cameron. All right, so let's get into the toys that made us. Yes. All right, so this project, um, I mean, so right up my alley. I'm such a pop culture nostalgia nut. I, I was born in 81, so I, I grew up with many of the toys that are covered in here, have fond memories during my formative years. It felt like as you guys were picking toys, even though like the G.I. Joe story starts, you know, earlier than that and, and, and Barbie starts earlier than that, a lot of these toys were kind of reaching their, their prime and their pinnacle when I was consuming them and playing with them as in, in the mid to late eighties. Right. Um, it's as you were headed into this series, as you're, I'm, I'm fascinated by the selection process with Netflix on the first season. I read an interview where you said that the original order was for eight and they needed them by Christmas. Right. But I'm, I'm fascinated, how did you, and I know they didn't roll out as eight. I know the first season rolled out as four episodes and then it got separated in season well, that, two. I'm not sure if you read the article wrong or if okay. I was misquoted or if okay. I spoke wrong. Uh, but the original order was for eight. Right. Um, and then uh, they decided uh, halfway through production to break it in half right. because they wanted to have the first four out for Christmas. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, yeah. So, Which has become the tradition. So let's talk about the selection process of what toys in the first season made the cut. Like, as you were submitting ideas, was Netflix giving you any analytics or anything they had on their end to, to push you in any direction or nudge you? Or did they totally rely on you and your team to kind of guide them on what the best stories were? Thank you for giving me the easy out. Uh, yeah, they, they deferred to us. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they greenlit the show. Uh, and the, I mean, they when we so they greenlit the show, and then we went and made it. About six or seven months after we started, I submitted the first cut of the first episode, which was Star Wars. Um, and to say, I mean, these notes changed my career. Mm. So first of all, we turned in uh, a two-hour and forty-five minute cut shut up Star Wars. and in my heart Brian. when i did send i was i was i i knew it was going to be a two-hour episode i was like you know i i, I know there's some fat here but <laughs> i did i it was like i know i got a two-hour episode here um yeah 
So I get the call from the exec. Fuck it, I'll say his name. It was Nat. And uh, Nat, I'll leave out his last name. And Nat, um, Nat goes, um, hey, man, you know, great first cut. Thank you for sending it to me. Uh, you know, we got to get it under an hour. And I'm like, under an hour? Are you crazy? Like, how, how, how on earth could we get this under an hour? And how was that not part of the conversation before you headed into post? How was that not something you already knew? Running time was not brought up? No, no okay, okay, all right, no, it's fine. It's fine. say recording right there. I, <laughs> again, I, what I want to answer, in my opinion, would be a massive compliment to Netflix. But you never but know how it's going to be taken. I never know yeah. based on, I don't work there. So yeah. they have a very different way of viewing the world than I do. Yeah. So I just, like I said, I don't want to say anything as a compliment. Like I literally had someone say to me once at Netflix when I said something positive about them on the stand-up side saying, do me a huge favor, Brian. Please stop complimenting us. <laughs> like, like, anyway, but the, to get back to your question. Sorry, it, needs to get, it, it needs to get under an hour. The Star Wars episode needs to get under an yeah, hour. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. So yeah, so I'm basically like, what are you talking about? Like how, like, all right, all right. Nat, give me one example. One example of what I could cut. I can't cut anything. I don't even know what I could cut. And Nat goes, and dude, this is verbatim practice. This is 99% verbatim. Nat goes, well, let's see. Um, you have an almost six minute pod on Vlix. Let me tell you who Vlix is. <laughs> Vlix was like the eighth or ninth lead from Lucasfilm's Droids cartoon <laughs> that was only released in Brazil. So we had a six minute pod on this fucking character. And I'm like, all right, that makes sense. That make and by the way, to this day, every editing bay, every everywhere, we have images of Vlix in every single place in the company to remind us. And like, I gave notes on something yesterday with this Disney Plus show we're doing. I like, and because I try to work with people over and over again, I'm right, I think this is a Vlix. And what that means to everyone now is lose it. It doesn't add value to the story. Amazing. So that was that. And then the other thing he said, which I quote weekly, and this is like three years ago now, he goes, he goes, Brian, is your wife a fan of toys? I go, no, she's not. He's like, so she has no interest in toys. I go, that is true. He goes, and he's British. So that's why yeah. he says, he I, know, I know, I know Nat. Yeah. Okay. So Nat goes, and again, I, I hope he's not mad at me for telling these stories. Um, but Nat goes, you need to make an episode so your wife, while watching it, doesn't get up to go make tea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that has become, if there is any nacelle, the nacelle secret sauce, that's it right yeah. there. Yeah. Like, and by the way, I, I was like, Nat, this call is over. You're right. I'm wrong. Your next cut will be under an hour. By the way, it was like 59, 59, but yeah. And it, it, it changed the entire course of our, th that show getting greenlit changed the course of my company's history. And those notes from Nat changed the course of my entire career. Before we get into the origin story of the pitch and how it sold, I, I, one more thing on the editorial, the tone of the show, the tone of the show, show the, 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 the narrator that you have, the writing is so sharp and so witty. Um, the editing, how it plays off of the writing, like 
you do these things in, in episodes where you play against the convention of a typical retrospective show where you, you do these head fakes for the audience. So the narrator will start taking you down a path and then you'll cut to an interview by, and one of the subjects in the interview will be like, yeah, that's not what happened. And was the tone that from the first cut, was that always the spirit of the show? Yeah. There, so there, there's two things that if, whenever I hear this, I, this is, cause I'll be honest with you. I just did what I do. And then years later when I'm doing interviews, it comes up. So I had to retroactively figure out what I did. So basically it was two things. One was I have rule, like I love documentaries and I, I've been watching documentaries since college, which as you know, was really hard to watch documentaries back then, mm -hmm. but I would literally watch documentaries in movie theaters. I love docs. And one of the things, so I came up with a bunch of rules about documentaries. And one of the rules was like, don't show shit that is cool in real life. That's fucking boring on your television set. And my example for that with toys is no collections, no collectors. They, like, it's so cool to be in a room like this and look around. It's very boring on your television set when you have your phone and your kids are running around. You have to constantly be giving information to the audience and showing my Darth Vader next to my Ahsoka Tano, who gives a shit? You want to know why does Darth Vader look like that? Why does Ahsoka Tano look like that? That's what a doc has to do. I'm not going to say the name of a doc, but I just saw a doc on one of my favorite movies of all time. Not Star Wars, not Star Trek. And they, like literally 20% of the doc is about the people who dress up like the characters yeah. in the movie. And it's yeah. like... You want to touch on that for 45 seconds? Good for you. Fine. Yeah. Don't make fun of them, but move on. Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's like, like, who cares? So that was, so I had a bunch of rules like that. The other thing was like my whole background was in comedy. So when the show got greenlit, I just hired my favorite editors who I'd worked with on comedy. And then one of the things that, again, I didn't put together until after a year after the show came out was when I was like, one day I was talking to my favorite editor, this guy named Ben Frost. And Ben was like, he was like, dude, I just want to thank you, man. Like, thank you so much for this opportunity and blah, blah, blah. Change my, all that crap, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, Ben, let me ask you something. I hear this all the time from people and I know you so well. Let me ask you. What do you mean by that? What did I do differently than other people? Like, what, what, what was it? And what he said to me was, which again, I never knew until he pointed it out. A year later, he goes, my whole career, I would turn in a first cut and the producers would say, oh my God, this is awesome. This is funny as hell. I'm laughing, at, falling out of my chair laughing. Tune it, tune it down. Right. Tone it, tone it down. They make it more tone, precious than it needs to be. Back. Push yeah. it back. It's too much. Yeah. He goes, you're the first producer I ever worked for who was like, that's fucking hysterical. Do more of that. Right. More, more, more. Because my background in comedy, I know the power of comedy. And by the way, because I know the power of comedy, I was still shocked that Trump won, but I was not shocked that Trump destroyed the other Republicans. That's his secret sauce. Like, he's so funny. Hate him as much as you want. That's, and you can ask, if you ask 100 comedians, they will tell you they knew Trump was going to win 
because they saw it on the road. And now I'm on a tangent, a real tangent. No, 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 no. But let's go, let's, whose idea was it? Because this is one of those ideas that's so simple yeah. on paper. It's one yeah. of those ideas somebody might have when they're driving in their car, you know, and be like, oh yeah, the toys are made. It's the history of the toys. Like who made them, what was going on, the battles for the rights and collaborations and like all that stuff. And then you think, well, what network is that for? You know, like that, it's, it's, it's such a simple idea. And like, how do you pitch it? Because it, it is such a simple idea. And sometimes the most simple ideas, you talk yourself out of them, right? Or you think there's no network for it. And I, I was told by a friend um, who may or may not work within the History Channel family, who said the pitch did make its way to them and they didn't think the show was big enough. Because that's a note you get now these days. Like talking retrospective stories about the history of toys, that's not big enough. How are we going to market that? How are we going to get people to tune in? what, whose idea was it and how many places did you take it? And what was the response you got? Uh, it was definitely my idea. I, I know exactly where I was when I had the idea. I was at a Borders Books uh, and I, uh, I was looking for a book. Uh, I don't, I couldn't tell you why anymore, but I was looking for a book about the origin and the history of the Transformers. Mm. And here's a Borders Books. It was the Borders on uh, right across the street from the Beverly Center yep. uh, that I think is a supermarket now. Uh, and, uh, I was like, there's not a single book here about any toy history except for Star Wars and Barbie. And even those books weren't about the history of Kenner or Mattel. They were about Star Wars and Barbie figure, Barbie dolls. So that was the inspiration. And I, I, it took me, I think if I remember correctly, about seven years to sell the show. Um, seven I, years. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I'm not. I never think who's going to buy this. I'm either a genius or the biggest idiot who ever lived. I never do that. I go with what I'm pat. I know I can't sell what I don't believe in. And I have confidence that I can sell shows I do believe in. So I, I put together a, a deck, just a deck. And that deck, I'll tell you what the cover was. Uh, and this was the deck that went to History Channel. Uh, it was the famous painting of George Washington crossing the Delaware, but all the heads were replaced with toy figure heads. Like, so, op like Optimus Prime on George's body? Exactly, you nailed it. George Washington was Optimus Prime, mm -hmm. Bumblebee, Snake Eyes, Barb, like that's yeah. what it was. And it wasn't the toys that made us, it was, uh, I think it was the toys that built America. Because uh, the men who built America had been a thing at that point. I don't even think it was yet. Maybe. Oh, really? Was, I don't know. That okay. You're probably right. That would have been too big of a coincidence. Um, but literally, that was the first deck that went out. And I, they, we were budgeting, dude. Like, they wanted four episodes to come out for Christmas. And then I got a call from them, and uh, they passed. I got a call from Tim Healy. I remember it the day I, like, it was so gut-wrenching. Hey, it's always gut-wrenching when you think you're getting a green light and it becomes a pass. Yeah. But this show, man, I mean, it's my only hobby is, is toy mm. collecting. So mm. for it to go away, it killed me. Then about a year and a half later, I was in the same thing with Nat Geo. Do you know Nicole Reed? Yeah, I do know Nicole Reed, yeah. It was Nicole Reed. And again, we were budgeting. We had the whole thing worked out. And she, uh, I was in Gilroy, California, shooting a pilot. The, gar the garlic capital of the world, not far from my hometown of Santa Cruz. You got it. Well, little different cities, though. Very, very uh, different. And, yeah. um, and she, I'll never forget, I was shooting 
I think a pilot, it was for Discovery, and I saw her calling, and I answer it, and I'm like, I literally thought this was the call. Is it four episodes or six episodes? And it was killed. They killed it. And basically what happened was, and this is why, again, I go out of my way to stress to anybody listening, it's all about luck. I guess it's about perseverance, sort of, I guess, but it's all about luck. There was this guy in, at Netflix who was in the stand-up comedy acquisition arm. Mm. And for two or three years, I was selling him stand-up comedy. So two major things happened. One, this guy was transferred into the new unscripted department. This isn't Lou Wallach, is it? No, this was... Okay. okay. This is before this, before Lou was there. Years. I okay. mean, five or six years before Lou. I, okay. at, least, at least. maybe. Yeah, this was... This was two, well, maybe not five or six years, way before Lou, way okay. before Lou. Um, so he got transferred over to this new department to do unscripted. But the other thing that was so important, and this might sound like a, a tiny thing to people, but I know you'll get it. He had been to my house mm-hmm. and he had seen my toy collection. And as you know, producers, we get typecast just like actors. So I was the comedy producer. So one of the biggest problems I had with selling a show about toys was, why is the comedy guy calling me about toys? Mm-hmm. So because he'd been to my house, because he'd seen my collection, he knew I was a quote unquote expert. So I started banging away on him. You gotta buy toys, you gotta buy toys, you gotta buy toys for at least six months. And again, I'll never forget this to the day I die, at least six months later, on like a Saturday morning, by the way, here's a funny COVID joke. I know it's a Saturday morning because up until 60 days ago, I was never in my home office. The liver? Weekend. And I remember I was, he, he called me up and he was like, okay, dude, if we were to do a show about toys, here's how it would work. And I'm like scrambling, writing down the notes, writing down the notes. And if I sum up what he said into one sentence, he said, the perfect show for Netflix is that 70s show because it's four quadrants. The old people love it because it's nostalgic for the 70s. The young people love it because it's hot cast members. And we went out like with, uh, less than two weeks later, I shot a tape. I shot it at my local toy store in Burbank, Glass from the Past. I, sh- I the whole crew left that location, came to my house. We turned my living room into like a sound stage. We shot beautiful close-ups of all my toys, edited the whole thing together with that 70s show, that 70s show in my mind. Mm. Six weeks later, got the green light. Oh my God. That's a great So story. had that guy not been transferred, guy named Devin, by the way, mm-hmm. had that guy not been transferred and had he not been to my house, I don't think, first of all, I don't think there'd be a Toys That Made Us. Second of all, let's just say, for example, Nat Geo had greenlit the show. And this is not Nicole Reed's fault at all. Nicole Reed wanted to make exactly the show I wanted to make. The show Nat Geo wanted me to make would have been an absolute failure. They had so much of it. It would have been all about Matt Damon talking about making the Transformers movie. Netflix let me make the show I wanted to make. And what I always say about Netflix is very hard to sell to them. But once you sell, 
It's on you. Yeah. They Delta, by the way, and again, here's the epitome of what I don't want Nat mad at me for saying or Netflix mad at me for saying. I honestly think if I had jumped up and down and said, no, Star Wars needs to be almost three hours long, I really think there's a chance they would have been like, all right, fuck you. I guess no season two then. Like, they, they're so good. They really call them suggestions and they mean it. How, how hard is it with Barbie? Let's take Barbie, for example. How much scrutiny was there with the, the folks from the, the toy companies and the people from the past? Like some of the, like Barbie, you know, to get them to be willing to go on camera and talk, is that Hasbro or is that Mattel? It's Mattel. Mattel. To get Mattel, I mean, you were going to be dealing with the same people across different episodes. So was it hard to get the toy manufacturers on board early on? So... There's, there's basically a, a very finite, because a lot of these companies own multiple brands. Right. So I'll start with, there's only one company that was like, what is going on here? And that was Sanrio. I, I could do a two hour doc on like my year of working with Sanrio. I mean, up was down, down was up. I mean, it was w- truly one of the strangest companies I have ever, there cannot be a stranger company than what toys? What toys is that? Hello Kitty. Okay, hello, Kitty. We'll just put the, they're not bad. Yeah. They're good people. They're a good company. They make so much fucking money. You yeah. wouldn't even understand how much money they make. But we'll, So we'll put them aside. All the other companies, there was a tough part and then an easy part. The tough part was, you're full of shit. Everybody says they're making a doc about toys for HBO or Netflix. Send me an email or a letter from Netflix. And again, if there's any beautiful Netflix story... I literally emailed or called the, the head of business affairs that I deal with at Netflix. I'm like, dude, can you send me a letter just saying the show's real? He's like, dude, any, you know this, dude. Any yeah. other network, this would yeah. have been days or weeks. Yes. He wrote it with me on the phone. Oh, come he on. He goes, what do you need it to say? I'm like, to whom it may concern. <laughs> this is blah, 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 Netflix. You have my email. You can email me directly. Yes, right. we have greenlit a show about toys. Yeah. Once Mattel, once Hasbro, once Playmates, once Lego, once everybody got it, it everybody was some degree of cool. Every company has its idiosyncrasies. Yeah. They were all cool. Hasbro mm. was wonderful. I mean, Mattel, everybody was wonderful. Mm. In fact, it's now literally them being like, how come you haven't done Hot Wheels? How come you, like, that's... I, I was going to say, I mean, as a fanboy, and I know you can't confirm what might be coming up in future cycles, but as a fanboy, I was like, is there going to be a Micro Machines episode? Because I'm fascinated by Micro Machines. And you have so many good ones. What's that? If you're fascinated by Micro Machines? Yeah. I just got sent a book that is, like, for you. I, I get sent stuff all the time. Well, the, to- thing, I, the thing I love about the toy episode so much, it's, it's the early development process of when an idea is pitched and how just like a television show, it's so subjective and nobody really knows what the kids are going to gravitate to and what, what they won't. And I always love thinking of what was the first pitch? And with Micro Machines, it's like, wait, what was the pitch with Micro Machines? It was just baby cars. Dude, I just read this book last week. Okay. If you had asked me this eight days ago, I couldn't have answered. Yeah. It literally was like, we can't compete with Matchbox. It costs X amount of money to make one car how many cars can we make for X amount of money if they're right. small? Right, right. The book is called Micro But Mighty. Okay. Literally, the author sent it to me 
just to see if I would post about it. So I, I, it's, it's, it's like, I'm looking at it right now. Amazing. It's the best book ever. Okay, amazing. I, so you know, even though I'm the one rambling, I have a heart out at about 11, 20, 11, 25. Okay, I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep moving. Uh, so Movies That Made Us. I read in the article that Movies That Made Us was the first spinoff that Netflix had done. Is that true? That's what I've heard from conversations at Netflix, okay. but they need to verify that. I'm, I'm quoting the New York Times article. So however they got their information, that's what was put in there. Yeah. Um, movies That Made Us, first season. There's only been one season thus far, correct? There were four episodes uh, in the first season. Uh, again, the selection process of how the movies were picked, did they, was there studio they, consideration they, in play here? Nothing about the studios. That okay. wasn't an issue. They were much more involved with picking the movies. Yeah. Like, very, very hands-on with that. In a good way. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that, that they were very involved with the movies. Also, because of the nature of your podcast, I think you'll find this very interesting. Um, so, once Toys was perceived to be successful, they asked me to come in. By the way, I don't know if they asked me to come in. <laughs> I, I may have asked to come in. If I had to guess, I asked to come in. I don't think Netflix was banging on my door for a spinoff, if I had to guess. But anyway, um, I went in, like, if I spent 100 units of time developing a pitch, 99.5% of those minutes were about the games that made us. Yeah. I made a tape that is, to this day, one of my favorite tapes. It, it would make you tear up. It was so emotionally powerful because I was trying to outdo the tape I had made for toys that made us that mm -hmm. got the show Greenland. Mm -hmm. At the last minute, dude, I was working on that tape for two months. And this is video games and board games. Uh, it, yeah, it was the games that made us. It was video games and, ga and games that made us. Yeah, and board games. At the last, so literally two months to make that tape. I think the pitch was on a Thursday. On Monday, I'm like, maybe I should pitch the movies that made us. And all I did was I took that famous poster of Bruce Willis in Die Hard, mm -hmm. in the wife beater with the mm -hmm. gun. Mm -hmm. And because I knew that was a sequel to a Frank Sinatra movie, by the way, I mean, you have to see the movie. If, if, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's one of the most violent. Really? It is so, if you think the Bronson, like Death Wish movies were dark and violent and depressing. Huh. Dude, at the end of the movie, and I think this is in the, I know it's in the episode, his daughter falls off the roof and dies. Right, 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 right. Killed. Like he's drummed out of the force at the beginning, but. So Die Hard's in your mind. So Die Hard's in my mind. And all I did was I had our art department in the most fast, easy, lazy, cheesy way possible fucking photoshop frank sinatra's face onto that famous poster of bruce willis we sent it to like a kinko's or whatever fedex printed it on shitty stock i mean it was garbage it was absolute garbage borderline a joke because i think my plan was and this was to brandon reag and nat i think my plan was as a joke pitch games 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 and then at the end be like but i got a poster and show him this stupid fucking poster. And then literally, I could see it in Brandon's face where he was like, ooh, I like that. And of course, in my head, I'm like, well, 
what about games? <laughs> yeah, needless to say, uh, we have not made games that made us yet. So the movies that made us uh, the first season, Die Hard, Home Alone, Ghostbusters, Dirty Dancing. The thing I noticed as a producer that stood out was, let's just say you had sold the same show or pitched the same show to a network, say with the initials E and A. They would have said to you, well, you're going to do these big movies. You got to have the stars. You have to have the actors in these movies for these to work. I mean, if, if we'll, give you, we'll give you a cast contingent series as long as you get Macaulay Culkin and Catherine O'Hara for the Home Alone episode. You're, these episodes don't have any of the cast members. They are told through the perspective of the studio execs, the casting director, the, the choreographers, yeah. the writer-directors, and they work and they're amazing because it's about the creative process and how something gets made. And again, no one ever knows what's going to take off and what will. And a lot of these movies, they find lightning in a bottle, like Dirty Dancing. It's just lightning in a bottle. Again, how did you get these through at Netflix of all places, which is a premium network, without any actors agreeing to be on camera? Because the whole premise of the relationship at that point was they saw what I did with stupid toys. Ah. If he could do that with toys. Right. Which is basically, if you think about it, to be honest with you, despite Barbie and Hello Kitty and My Little Pony, it's kind of a two-quadrant toy. Yeah. Uh, a two-quadrant two genre. Right. Like, imagine what these guys could do with movies. Right. By the way, all you have to know that I didn't pick the movies was the movies in season one. Oh, really? I, don't get me wrong. I love Dirty Dancing and Home Alone. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, if they had done to me what I did, what they did with toys, you know, it would have been RoboCop, you sure. know, I'm Batman, yeah. Okay, so, so I, I spent, well, I, okay, so I played this game last night. You're right, just to, sorry to interrupt. But oh, just, yeah. You're right. Like, thank God we did, did what we did. Oh, thank God you had Dirty Dancing. Like, that was how I got my wife to want to watch all the episodes. And, and Ghostbusters is, like, my favorite movie of all time. So I was, I was all in. So I, play, I probably spent way too much time last night prepping for this to prepare what my four would be for a season two. But I took into account, my original list was Top Gun, Pretty Woman, A Christmas Story, Caddyshack, Rocky. And then I realized all those directors have passed away. So if you're playing within the rules of your show, all those directors are gone now. No, that's not a rule of the show. It's an absolute coincidence. Uh, coincidence. The directors okay. were alive. Okay. Because I was wondering if that, that, would, that would rule out any of these. Because if you don't have the actors and you don't have the directors. So, by the way, my research, you probably already know this. Rocky, the same director as the Karate Kid. The Karate Kid writer is also known for co-creating Transporter and the Taken series. Did you know that? I didn't, I didn't know that going in. Robert Mark Hammond, I had no idea. He's also a, a winemaker in Sonoma. So here's my pitch with directors that are still alive. Splash. Goonies, The Terminator, and just to throw one in there that you wouldn't see coming, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So do me a favor, look at your list. Tell me the number of movies you just pitched me. Uh, well, that was my, fi my final list was four. Take but, all of those together. Take, oh, there's so many. There's an infinite amount. No, 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 no. The, number, the, the names you just read to me. No, I, I have a reason for this. Okay. How many did you just say to me? One, two, three, four, five, six, uh, ten. You are going to be 20% happy, 80% disappointed. Oh, okay. All right. That's okay. That's okay. You, you, as long as you give me a little, little Mav and Goose, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all in. I won't, say, I won't tell the audience what that face was just now. 
Um, all right. Well, Brian, I, I know you got to go. You have a hard out. I want to talk to you about Johnny Carson uh, because you did, you did that uh, television series with Paul Reiser, but we're, we're out of time. But just so you know, I am reading this. I'm showing you. I'm reading this Johnny Carson biography right now. No have you read this? That's not his biography, by the way. No, no. It's just the Henry That's Bushkin. Better. That's better than his biography. Oh, it's, of course it is because it's, it's oh by his God. lawyer. It's amazing, right? Dude, there's a scene in the book with him and Ed McMahon in a restaurant. I mean, truly, truly, almost falling out of my chair laughing, tears racing down my face in laughter. One of the funniest things, even now talking about it, I'm tearing up. It is so funny. Okay. I can't, I'm, mid, I'm midway through it right now. The series, by the way, is There's Johnny. Um, and uh, also Brian is an executive producer of the new Mad About You. Those are scripted shows, so we didn't have enough time to get into those, but just know the breadth of this man's career. Brian, thanks for answering a cold email and, and agreeing to go on the show. Uh, but thank you for saying, I mean, I'm sure like you, man, like the fact that anyone gives a shit about what I think is still shocking to me. Like I never did an interview in my life, like up until two and a half years ago. So um, yeah, so thank you for your interest. All right, man. Appreciate it. Have fun with the uh, the neighbor and the music blaring next door. Have fun with your uh, lawnmowers. You got it.